we're on episode three of uh, Tech from the Top, um, which is uh, entitled, well, no, do you know what? Uh, our producer told us that we needed to reintroduce ourselves because everyone was so forgettable that everybody would have forgotten us between episodes. So here's another <laughs> shot of who we are. Uh, I am Richard Conway, uh, and uh, I'm one of the founders of ElastiCloud and uh, also um, uh, Microsoft Regional Director. And uh, uh, now I can say I was not Azure for a decade. Uh, I was not Azure MVP for a decade because uh, now I no longer am. Um, I'm a retired MVP, which makes me sound like the elder statesman of MVPs. Uh, unfortunately, I've met all of the elder statesmen of MVPs and they're all office MVPs. Uh, so <laughs> I'm going to find a new classification for myself. Um, but uh, in a nutshell, that's me. I like data. I like cloud. Um, I'll have fun doing new innovative things. And I definitely don't get to do enough innovation during the day. So that's my new challenge for this year. And uh, and over to you, Andy. Who are you? I'm Andy. I'm Andy Cross. I'm another founder of ElastiCloud. And uh, I'm basically a bit of a clone of Rich. Uh, so been doing Azure for a long time since it wasn't a thing um, and I founded ElastiCloud to do the cool parts of Azure. I do manage to do a little bit more innovative stuff than Richard manages to do uh, mainly because I've got a fantastic ability to ignore things in my inbox and not get sucked down rabbit holes um, and I spend most of my time these days on IoT, digital twins, data contextualization and uh, bringing things together around the real world and building apps in that space. Uh, just like Rich as well, you know, I'm a I'm now a retired MVP. Um, I like to think of it as like champion MVP. You know, you get to the end of all the levels and you, you beat the boss and then uh, and then you become like the, the the winner, as it were. But it's not really like that. It's more instead that uh, we're just different phases of our life and uh, and uh, we're not necessarily directly aligned with with what Microsoft want that MVP program to be, which is very interesting, maybe subject for for um, for another podcast in the future. Um, Andy, I love that. that yeah. I mean, <laughs> that is just absolute magic, right? We have got to create because, you know, I, I still want to do Azure Craft and, um, you know, some of the best some of the best ones have been when we've been teaching them web, web gaming, like yeah. with Whitney and when we... Um, when I taught some of the kids in the Vodafone, Vodafone Incubator Pie game, um, so I, I think having having an MVP game is fantastic. You know, there's yeah. like an MVP API, right? Let's let's just make it next level. You know, we can <laughs> we can have all the MVPs of different classifications, like a kind of Space Invaders, and uh, <laughs> we, we can, so the um, the oh, who should we start with? I think. I think the I maybe the maybe the AI MVPs are like the the because they're not that numerous. They're the sort of little nasty ones. Mm. Um, we can make we can make the office MVPs like the shields because you can just you know throw projectiles at them and they just notice like bits fall off of them. <laughs> <laughs> All the time. Oh, we can we can do it more like Tetris, right? So we get these different MVPs coming down and they're not actually fully formed human beings. Instead, they're like odd shapes and you have to build like <laughs> a piece of software or something abstract off the back of these MVPs with the moral of the story being that you don't build anything with MVPs. <laughs> That's brilliant. So 
So we can actually shape MVPs from Tetris. Like kind of, yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously, a lot of them would be quite large and chunky shaped. <laughs> Um, the, the, the the first year MVPs are a bit more lean. Oh wow, we are getting into territory here, aren't bad we? Territory, bad territory, bad <laughs> territory. Yeah. Backtrack, um, backtrack. But the but the so Gabriel, this is all stuff for you um, to uh, to edit. <laughs> yeah. Not no no no. We're we're truth seekers here, so we're not into editing. We're into uh, libeling and slandering ourselves, which uh, is uh, is who we are. But. Um, I, I genuinely think that an MVP game would be fantastic for the kids. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, we can present it back to the MVP community to um, to take on. Because um, nothing, nothing from, yeah, nothing's, um, yeah. But I, I guess, I guess one of the things which, one of the things which we've always, uh, we've always really thought about is that sort of shared ownership uh, of things within the MVP community. And now, now our community life is coming to an end and we're probably going to do things on our own. Um, we can put that out there and maybe mm. someone from the MVP community will pick it up from GitHub and then turn it into an MVP Uber game. Anyway, enough about that. Um, we are actually here to discuss um, 10 things we hate and love about Azure. Um, oh, God. And uh, we've got some guests today. What we decided was that... Um, Andy and I spend far too long talking a lot of twaddle. And so uh, yep. as we get into our program, we are going to invite some guests. Um, and we probably, do you know what? We So we've we've prepped, we've prepped Darren, um, who I'm going to introduce in a sec. And uh, Darren is absolutely awesome. Um, quite um, actually one of my favorite people. Um, and then we've got Sandy as well who is also one of my favorite people um, and uh, we're going to introduce them and let them introduce themselves and they are going to have a crack at a couple of points on 10 things um, Ten things we hate and love about Azure. Um, thankfully we've got our producer um, Gabriel to keep us honest who added the love bit. Um, I think yeah. it's called love isn't it? Is that, is that what we've agreed on the title? Yeah, hate and love, not love and hate. Love. Yeah, yeah, in the right order. Love and hate. Yeah, okay, hate and love. Okay, so um, so we're going to be doing that today, and because we were going to invite um, one or two more people, and we didn't, you know what I think we should do? We should we should try a phone a friend strategy towards the end of this. Um, oh yeah. Land. Yeah. Yeah. What do you reckon? Oh, uh, we're definitely going to make this fun for Gabriel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we will. We'll. Do you know what? We'll take a. We'll take a call on who our friend should be um, yeah. after we've after we've got into the guts of this. Okay, cool. Okay, so um, as always, um, we haven't prepared um, diddly squat for today. Ah, speak for yourself. Uh, I'm here with uh, no, not very much actually. <laughs> well, I, I think that is a perfect segue into me turning my mute button on and then you starting with number one of number uh, one. one thing that you hate about your. Well, it's an interesting one. Let's, let's start with the with the overall relationship with Azure and uh, and its position in in the market and what it's done to technology. So, just a subtle, small starting point, and this one might last a, a while, but I'm going to try and drill down a little bit into what I mean by that. So, I do want to start off with the fact that I love Azure and cloud as a as a concept, and Microsoft's approach to it has been. 
um, developer-orientated and API-driven from the start. And these are all really good things. With the notion that we we shouldn't really be just using computers um, in somebody else's data center um, with with uh, one one to one kind of mappings between hardware aspects and our interface to them. So rather than having a notion of something in the cloud, which is a computer, we should have a notion of something called like a, a cloud environment. We should have something which abstracts us away from the the actual implementation physical implementation and lets us build software which is abstract and what we would probably these days call cloud native that is described with cloud concepts and allows us to build them for the benefit of the environment that they're hosting to take advantage of the cheapest compute the the most uh, scalable the most recoverable the most disaster resilient those kinds of things are supported by the ability of Microsoft to present to the developer a um, a platform described abstractly from the physical implementation that allows the physical implementation of actual machines to to change over time for some of them to burn down and for new ones to come in for for them to upgrade computers without downtime in your application for them to do all kinds of really interesting stuff underneath it by abstracting software from hardware. That's one of the big big victories. It's arguably a victory of virtualization, but it's the next step. It's not just virtualization, because virtualization still talks about virtual machines, right? We're not really, we don't want to be talking about that anymore. We want to be talking about something more broadly. And I think that overall, Microsoft succeeded in some really key areas in building a very good abstraction between um, the underlying technology and, and, uh, and the actual developer-facing cloud uh, platform. So places where I think are really good there, um, things like Azure Functions, where you can just wrap up small pieces of code within an, uh, within an SDK effectively or within a, a, a format or a pattern of programming and then deploy it and it will just take care of the scale, take care of the runtime, take care of the environment and give you ability to do things like configure them and things like that. I think that is literally the bomb. They're the best, they're literally the best things that are out there. Um, but what I do find slightly, uh, well, actually, no, incredibly frustrating when I look across all of the functions, all of the sort of tech cloud native um, implementations that are out there, I see a slide away from the purity of, of um, a cloud approach back towards virtualization, back towards infrastructure as a service. And I see that across the board with with all kinds of different platforms that start off really really good and they have this life cycle they deploy something and there's a service which becomes generally available and it it gives you the ability to build something or write something in a in a really fantastic way really abstract gets really quick value out of it and then you get this slow um erosion of the of the underlying principle of why they're doing it by the sort of abrasive characteristics of the enterprise and of users from the enterprise who are bringing the wrong thinking to the right solution and they abrade away at the at the actual foundations of the abstraction and they start injecting pieces in that are unhelpful so we start getting terms from virtualization inside 
areas of abstraction. So we have virtual networks inside web apps, right? So a web app is a nice abstraction that describes a, a, a runtime or a workload. And then suddenly we have virtual networks underneath it that we, we need to start configuring and, and worrying about. And that is like one of the, the tendencies you get across the board of things becoming less abstract, becoming more physical or more tied towards physicality. And that's not what the cloud is about. The cloud is actually about getting value as developers and development um, companies, as people who want to innovate and create things that are brand new. And they want to do that by abstracting themselves away from all the overhead, all the overhead that underpins all of the legacy software. We move away from those. So what we get, though, is this tendency and this trajectory of the platform to, to bring itself down, to sort of get a little bit middle-aged and get a little bit droopy. And its droopiness in its, in its abstraction it droops down into the lower sort of fuzziness of layers between them. And we should have some services out there that exist entirely without that virtualization droop. I don't know. Richard, what do you think? Oh, my God, that was so esoteric. It was like so incredibly esoteric. I, I don't know why, but I just I thought I thought for the first point you were just going to go. Um, I hate App Insights. It's terrible. <laughs> it would have been so much easier to respond to. Um, oh, wow. Um, God, it's really, really heavy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> my it's really going to put me to shame now because I haven't thought about any of my points. Um, well, this is something we go on about all the time, right? So it, we're doing it the other day, you know, we, we were deploying out um, some, I can't remember quite what it was, but uh, we got ourselves in a, a real, a real mess um, because we had to configure something around virtual networks and joining virtual networks together. But the end thing that we were trying to deploy was was nothing related to, to the lower level virtual network. Right. And it was just that now, because of the prevalence of those infrastructure loons who are all over the place, that there is this requirement for you to set up virtual networks to cooperate with their services, which is, you know, next door effectively. And yeah. that's kind of what I mean by the leaky abstraction between them. If you're in a, an enterprise and, and we're solving solution A, but we kind of need to exist or, or coexist alongside people building um, solution B, solution B's design choices and to a degree self-loathing powered life choices um, are, are the ones that are, let's go low level, let's go virtualization, let's go virtual networks. And then my app needs to know about their app and needs to know about their virtualization, even though I'm trying to be high level and abstract and take advantage of the cloud. And that that leakiness is totally such. Yeah, you're, you're, you're right. You're right. And I think I think maybe just to maybe just to paraphrase what you've said. It, it I guess I guess one of the one of the things for me is that everybody everybody starts using the cloud as if it were on prem. And yeah. so the that same levels of governance and compliance and, you know, understanding of networks and throughput and all of the problems that you carried across are still there. Yeah. And, you know, it's because especially within the enterprise, you know, they create this sort of centrally compliant and secure model, which then everybody has to use. But yeah. they don't 
they choose policy without understanding what everybody's trying to do, which yeah. means that um, over time they have to supplement that policy because um, people haven't got the necessary permissions to do the things that are low level. You know, and it could be simple things like you talked about VNets and virtual networks, um, but, you know, adding subnets or adding routes. Yeah. Like, it becomes a nightmare when you don't have that low level of control. So you create this dependency on this team and the cloud is supposed to democratize that which is yeah. which is the problem so i mean the the i guess for me the i look at this in in two ways and i'm i'm going to throw i'm going to throw the counterpoint to this which is a love point right um i i was a i was a user of linux um at uni and then i stopped for about 20 something years and then i started using it again when it was available in 2012 and I loved it. And I loved being able to build VNets. Um, you know, I used to used to use Cisco PIX routers and provide scripts for them and other things. And I never got the opportunity. And then, you know, Azure comes back and it brings me into this space again, you know, which I absolutely love. And I think I think part of the problem that you're that you're actually describing is the fact that we're going back to this very model-based centralized way of looking at things where rather than having the low-level control that you need to whenever this gets adopted by the enterprise they still they still treat this as a central function regardless yeah. you know whereas it would be so much better on a project basis to have requirements and guidelines and tools and techniques for you to be able to manage and do all this stuff yourself um and then yeah, absolutely. So that. I think that's that's absolutely the case. The the core notion of DevOps is you build it, you own it, you operate it, right? And and then having other people in other teams that you have to rely on to set stuff up is an irrelevance. And you know the reason why you have network specialist teams is that networking is hard, um, and you need people who understand the whole network topology to be able to build it and plan it effectively. And if you just have lots of people setting up lots of nets, you end up with lots of problems. Um, but the reality is you don't you don't really need any of it because all the services in Azure, uh, you know, when correctly configured, will have their own abstracted networking set up as part of the services. And and it, it will be good enough for ninety nine point nine percent of use cases. And for most of those use cases that are left over, networking itself provides no intrinsic value, right? It's it, you're in the cloud, you're within the cloud. You shouldn't be yeah. thinking about the lower level. It's very, very true. It's very true. So I think, I think, yeah, I think, I think my counterpoint is that I love the provision of all of these services, but the fact that when when it gets to the enterprise, it hasn't actually been democratized is the thing that annoys me. Mm -hmm. um, and you can you can see it. I mean, if you look at if you look at the where we're working in in various enterprises, you know, there's a push for everybody to be a data scientist, yeah. right? Like or a Power BI expert, right? Where is the push for them to to do networking, which is actually far simpler, yeah, right? Like you say today, it's all point and click, right? Understanding route optimizations and MVAs and things like that, which Honestly, you don't even learn in specialist infrastructure exams. I did I did all this in my Azure Architect exam, right? It's mainstream now. So I think I think maybe the counterpoint is the problem that um, IT shouldn't really be providing any of this as a function. It should be a thin layer 
to allow to guide you through this with some controls, but not control, not command and control. I still think that networking as a whole, when you include it into a, a cloud application, is like saying not only do we need to build our sports car, we also need to lay all the roads and work out all the intersections between those roads and make sure we've got good route planning between John O'Groats and Land's End. And I don't really think that's relevant to the sports car. It's true. Yeah. Good point. Anyway, anyway rant, rant of networking nice. rant over. <laughs> I feel, feel a thousand times lighter now. Excellent. Well, I'm, I'm going to slow things down with my point because I've been writing while you've um, while we've had that conversation, and I'm I'm just gonna I'm just gonna make a small point because I thought, God, what can I say um, that doesn't that doesn't start me off on one on Synapse because I think we're too early on in the program for that, um, and I am thinking that one of the things that I hate is the fact that um, the evolution of what a partner means and what a partner does in Azure for a customer hasn't really grown um, in over a decade. It's still frustratingly complicated where even Microsoft can't dissect who's done what for their customers. Um, I was just I was just rummaging around the portal and looking at the the partner admins where you fill in your MPN ID and um, for me there's been there definitely hasn't been enough thought into that because um, every single partner consultancy that's been working for customers um, has got access to similar things, maybe not identical to what I would have access to. And there's no real way for Microsoft to disseminate um, from an automation perspective what what I've done or what we've done that makes us different. Yeah. 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 And I and I think I think it's a little bit unfair because the one of one of the things that I do love is the fact that Microsoft have got an extended partner community and all of the other cloud providers covered that. So so I think I think some of the you know whilst you know, whilst you've got like this phenomenal emergence in Microsoft of really taking care of their partners from a people perspective um, and making sure that they're okay, I think sometimes the the level of technology and interaction with Azure is a little bit ropey. It's a little bit, it's not not really thought through properly. Yeah, it's a fair point. I think um, back in the day there was the uh, the POR. Do you remember that one? Um, oh, yeah, yeah. And there's been a, a variety of different things, and um, I relatively recently, I guess, it was integrated into the into the Azure portal to try and become more part of um, more part of the experience of being a partner and being recognised for that. Uh, but yeah, it didn't feel like it was particularly well integrated because, as you say, there's lots of you know, it's what you can see almost, and and often if you're in a role which is a governance role for example you might be able to see way more than you're actually influencing and um you know conversely as well you know if you're in a a specific project you might not be able to see a huge amount uh, you might only be able to see one particular resource maybe like a big old database or something that might actually be responsible for a lot of the the overall spend on a project um but other people would also be attributed to that and more because they can see it and they can see everything around it in different environments too. So yeah, it's a tricky one. 
Mm. I do think that's an interesting point. Maybe we can just elaborate around the edges. Slightly dangerous territory, perhaps, as a partner. But the Microsoft Azure partnership uh, model has been through some interesting times, hasn't it? It it has, and I think I think also uh, from a I mean I, I was thinking when we were talking about POR and we were talking about entering your partner MPN IDs into the portal. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I just <laughs> a brainwave. I, I remember when with the emergence of HD Insight, there was like a special place that you could put your MPN ID. Yeah. And do you remember? Um, sometimes you'd find like Hortonworks in it. <laughs> yeah. It's like the people who'd actually built all this. And you're like, well, uh, how does that work? Yeah. You know, they, were, they were consultants on just about every project at the time um, that we were on. And so it was it was all, all a little bit weird. I wasn't actually sure how we were supposed to use that. Uh, and I'm not even sure that Microsoft knew either. And then no, it, just, it just seemed to create competition and friction between the partners, really, didn't it? Yeah. Yeah, so I think I think the sentiment is great because Microsoft want to incentivize the partners for, um, you know, for for helping customers and also increasing Azure consumption because it means more revenue for them. Um, but I still think that after all these years, it's still a little bit confusing. Okay, um, so uh, we're two down and we are. Oh, let's check the timer. Oh, we're way into this program. Now. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we are gonna we're gonna have to. Definitely speed up. Um, you talk faster, or Gabriel can just edit down every other, every second word or something. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we've talked about networking and low level. We've talked about um, we've talked about the partner ecosystem. Um, so I'm <laughs> I'm going to give two of my bugbears on what I tell everybody is my favorite favorite service, and I I do I do love this service, um, but I. I absolutely love Stream Analytics, right? I've been a big fan of Stream Analytics um, since it was released. Um, it must be about seven or eight years old now. Um, I loved um, Stream Analytics query language. Um, it went through lots of different names. I remember in the in the early days when it was in preview, it was called NRT. Do you remember that, Andy? Near real yeah. time. Near real time, yeah. Near real time. And um, so one of the things that I... One of the things that I so I love the service. I just want to leave it there. And I also think it's an incredibly cost effective service. And I tell all of our customers that in terms of bang for your buck, right, if you're not, you know, if you're not going to be um, using horrendous amounts of compute on messages, then, you know, it's actually pretty reasonable at about, you know, 40 to 45 quid a month uh, as a start start price. Um, for yeah. One to three unit. So, um, but the thing that I the thing that I hate, right, is when you when you have to actually start something and it takes forever, and the start times haven't really increased, haven't really improved that much, and then if you have a problem with the query, um, you get a spurious error that you have to go through the old sort of activity log pieces and then start looking at some JSON to be able to. Um, to check this um and it hasn't really even though there's even though there is kind of a way to test this in net it hasn't really improved in, in visual studio hasn't really improved over the years and the interface being the pure web 
um, web interface, you know, looking for sample data and others, it can get quite confusing yeah. um, and really, really difficult to debug, especially very, very complex queries. And I don't think that, um, I don't think that level of investment has been there from the team that I would have liked to have seen over the years um, to fix some of this stuff, which which I think is basic usability. Yeah, so that kind of, that part of it particularly, I, I do totally agree with you. It, it's an amazing service overall and just sort of works in the background more often than not. And um, yeah, but when you're trying to set it up and you want to do some sample data and you want to work out what's coming on the stream so you can build your query, yeah, it, it, that can be a bit flaky. Uh, I'm totally with you on that part of it. But yeah, you're right as well. Mass, really, really, really amazing um, service to be looking at things as a stream of data and, and pushing it to various outputs without really hardly any effort. Uh, and I guess that there's there's something about that that is there's still one of the best ways of filtering and sending information from a real-time stream. Like, So me, I work a lot of that all the time. My team works a lot with with streams of data um around intelligent spaces and uh, you know often it's iot data and you know, you've got the iot hub which has got filtering and forwarding rules and you've got the event hub has got sort of similar around um around its uh, consumer groups and then you've got push it onto the twin and then you the twin has got routing rules and forwarding rules and you can do a whole heap of stuff on the platform sort of for free um, as uh, on top of stream operations, but I don't think that they have the the, the same level of um, configurability and of uh, performance that you get on stream analytics. So it's 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 actually outstanding in what it does. So I, yeah, I agree with you. That's it's a great service with a few usability issues. It is it is a beautiful service. Um, it can get. I've I've found out recently on one of the one of the projects that I've been in, um, and over the last year we've seen it get really expensive when mm. you have a lot of data. You can just whack that slider up to full. I think it's like 192 units, yeah. and um, you know when you've got like thousands or tens of thousands of messages uh, a second, um, the cost can get crazy. Yeah. Uh, but uh, you know, like you say, it's a it's an absolute it's a great service, um, and I think I think as you scale up, right, you have to start thinking about how you're partitioning data and all of the things which are more advanced with real time. You don't really have to worry about with low throughput with with uh, ASA stream as your stream analytics. Um, I think Microsoft shielded you from a lot of that more complex stuff with it. Yeah. Okay. Um, do you want to go? And do number four. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, it's one that I love, uh, and I did mention it earlier, but I'll double down on that. It's uh, it's web apps and the app services on Azure. Um, they're brilliant. Um, Azure web apps have been around for you know quite some time now, um, and they came out. There was web apps. There was well, they're called Azure websites to start with, and then there was Azure mobile apps that came out at the same time. Uh, kind of logic apps and a few other bits and pieces came out all all around the same time as like a suite of the app service. Um, a lot of that has changed, and there are some new parts um, in in the service that are a bit strange. That, that again go back to changing abstraction boundaries. I won't dwell on those too much. Just trying to be a positive one, but 
the idea that you can go into Azure and say, I want a web endpoint and I want to you know, call it this. Uh, I want it to run on this particular runtime, whether it's, you know, um, Windows or Linux. Uh, and then I want to just be able to connect it to Git or have a local Git environment set up and just pull it out. And it's got CICD baked in. You know, if you don't want to use that, you've got an endpoint that you can push to. There's like zip deploys or, you know, other types of deployment on there as well. Um, it does have a few few containerization uh, options coming in if you're doing some more interesting stuff. You've got the ability to run like uh, out of process web jobs on top of it, which are pretty neat. And, and you can run things like caches on there. Um, you can do all kinds of really awesome stuff with an Azure web app. And the thing about it is it's like click, click ready, right? That's That's the thing that really is where the platform should be shooting for. It shouldn't be click, click, wait 20 minutes ready. And it shouldn't be, you know, do loads and loads of configuration, 15 clicks, you know, it's it's not like that. Azure Web Apps did a great job early on. And I remember demos from people like Brady Gaster, you know, the Brady Meister, um, who is an old time, uh, you probably don't approve of me calling him old time. Sorry, Brady. Um, but no, he's, he's one of the original evangelists of Azure from way, way back. Um, and he used to do these demos where it was like, you know, I'll spin up something in any random platform. I'll do it in Node. I'll do it in Python. I'll do it, you know, I'll do it on, on .NET or something. And I'll just go, you know, um, push it up to Git. And and then go to a web browser, hit the endpoint. There it is. I'll do a change locally, push it to Git, and there it is immediately in, in the web app. And you know that experience um, it really pulls down barriers to developer success and developer productivity. And when we're trying to innovate and get people to create new features and 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 write software against requirements and rapidly innovate and rapidly get it out those that's the kind of experience you want at the end right you don't want the end to be this enormous development deployment pipeline that is you know hours long you want it to be super quick super lightweight and to give value to you as a developer validation verification of your work to your developers and then pushing it out to production is literally no different it's just you know, maybe it goes through a few more checks and balances about versions or or whatever. You've got an SLA with your customer. Th- those kind of things do need to come in towards the end. And they're all supported in the platform. So, yeah, it's just it's an end to end from dev through to production. It's got bells and whistles all the way through it. And just from the initial, the very first moment of using it and being able to go like, I just want to. I just want to deploy something real quick. It it does that, and it it doesn't disappoint all the way through its life cycle. So yeah, I mean, I used to build web servers um, way way back in the distant past, and and you know this thing, this Azure web app or websites that became Azure web apps, stopped me from having to do that ever again, and I love that. Oh, fantastic! So is that is that <laughs> love Azure web apps hate IIS? Is that the- uh, <laughs> it's a good abstraction over the top of it. IIS is great as well these days, but I don't want to have to touch it. I want no, to just fair enough. I, yeah, you know how easy it is to break. <laughs> well, I do. I've definitely no, done that a lot. Very, very true. That's that's nice. That is nice because I can't. I'm, I'm normally I'm normally far more cynical than you are, but um, honestly, with with web apps um, and app services generally, um, 
uh, ever since they were released, I've had a bit of a love affair as well. And all, yeah. all the integration with other services like um, App Insights, making it really yeah, it's easy. it's good, isn't it? It's all first it's class. Just, it is. It totally is. And and configuration and, you know, things yeah. that just make stuff Backing easy. off the key vaults and stuff like that if you want to. Yeah. It's just, it just all works. It's real good. It does. It does totally. Right. So what I'm thinking is I've got one point and um, then uh, I'm going to invite and introduce Darren after my point. And because Sandy's not joining us, um, Darren gets to say three things. Yay. So, uh, right. So my my point, um, which is um, which I, I think I think is. Yeah. Anyway, let me just say what I've got to say. So. Um, back in the day, we used to complain endlessly, and it used to be great when we were doing AWS Compete um, with Microsoft because AWS bills used to look like energy bills. Um, you used to have to dissect them. They were really hard to understand what you're actually spending your money on. And um, in the in the brief time that I set up a um, ElastiCloud um, AWS site because we had um, we had some free AWS credits from WeWork. Um, I forgot about it, just let it lapse. And uh, Marius and a few others had some stuff to do. Uh, Chris maybe as well. And they'd done a few bits and pieces on AWS. And I got the bill through when the credits ended. And I was like, oh, my God, what have we spent our money on? And I genuinely couldn't work it out. Um, now, I think... I think up until recently, until Microsoft's got more complicated, um, they have um, Microsoft pricing and the use of the pricing calculator um, has been second to none, right? It's been really, it's been a lot easier to just discern what a predicted spend is going to be and then send that to a customer or understand that yourself. Um, I think that with the advent of a few services, it's got much harder. And there's a lot more small print for some of the rules. And I'm going to give you an example of, and because because you you promoted love, I'm going to promote um, I'm going to promote hate with a recommendation. Um, so so just recently, um, we had to we realised that we were storing a large amount of data, and by large, I'm talking petabyte scale in storage. And we needed to, we realized that we were storing everything um, on an RA GRS SKU. So it was replicating to a twin data center. And we wanted to, we wanted to move this to ZRS, which is a zone redundant storage. And in order to do that, you've got to go through this intermediate state of um, changing the SKU, which you can do through the portal, um, to LRS, local redundant storage, and then you need to raise a live migration ticket um, for ZRS with Microsoft. Now, the thing that really annoyed me, given that given that in this instance the the storage cost was very, 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 very expensive, um, the thing that really annoyed me is the fact that we couldn't opt out of um a 30-day period which were in the terms and conditions where we where we cut the um ragrs so that replica that second copy we, that we'd stopped paying for we still had to pay for a further 30 days 
It wasn't wasn't clear at the start. And it also wasn't intuitive um, as to why. And I sort of surmised that it might be if we if we and I haven't asked this question, so I'm making a lot of to Microsoft, so I'm making a lot of assumptions. But um, it it might be because we um, because that data may need to be recovered, uh, and we know the recovery period is within. 30 days for the for the team or at least it used to be um so i kind of understood it for that but i hated the fact that we already had three copies of this data and if we needed to scrap the additional three copies then that's what we wanted to do you know pl plain and simple and so not having the option to 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 do that which is going to cost a lot of money just because of microsoft microsoft's process you know, with the cloud being as agile as it is, when you pay for what you use, um, that to me was down to a flaw in their process. Um, so it got me thinking. So that's the hate thing. And there's like loads more examples of where um, I have it, have issue with pricing and the way that it's not presented properly, causing a lot of confusion. Um, but one of the things that I was thinking that might be kind of cool, because you go through your two-year cycle, and then um, what you end up doing is you want to consolidate. And um, for some of the projects and programs of work that I've been on, which are very, very storage intensive, um, I would love to have a Microsoft recommendation around storage and compute, um, like in exactly the same way as they recommend cost savings across everything else, but make it very, very context sensitive towards your usage patterns, towards your data platform, towards all of the things related to the modern cloud data warehouse. Um, so that so that it can almost recognize, recognize the pattern that you're using and trim down your costs for that. Um, and it could be that it could be that some of this, like in this case, would be to understand how you could do better archiving within within your landing containers um, based on usage. Um, understand the you know the the number of transactions and whether or not um, you could you could have a compute recommendation so that you can you can shift some shift some uh, transactional cost away from storage and towards compute or some kind of intermediate cash. Um, so I think I think for me that would be that would be the next generation of ace things that Microsoft could do to help customers um, who have established um, their platforms and want to cut cut their costs. I don't think I can disagree with you. Um, starting off with with pricing and and with the complexity of it like how many how many iterations of apis have there been to get to get access to, to billing data and how complex does it tend to be um it is it's like an ongoing saga right and you can download samples and um and power bi uh dashboards and stuff which show you different numbers the ones you get yourself that's there's been some interesting iterations in the middle there i tend to think it's in a relatively good state and then i kind of look at the complexity around the different reseller models and 
um, CSPs and and then the the sort of prepay versus um, the commits kind of models, those things. And there's a huge amount of complexity around the edge. Um, And then when you think about it from the implementation or runtime perspective, and just as you said, right, you choose to go from a particular type of storage to another type of storage and it isn't seamless it doesn't it doesn't even try and copy that for you and then just give you the the financial benefits of it it just says you know you chose that at the start and that's it that's you're stuck with it and i'd say that that is a that is a problem that detracts from the genuine kind of mobility within the cloud between services and even between between types of implementations of of the same service um i think there's a few places actually where if you go and create something like a a database or something uh, and you just you know fat finger it and you end up calling it data boost or something you know and you have to then you want to try and rename it or you want to you want to just fix that sort of slightly embarrassing uh, typo that you've got in the in the name. Um, you can't. You have to say goodbye to all the work that you've done to configure it yesterday, and then you have to go and reconfigure it today. I mean, if you if you've gone in, you've used a script to do it. Maybe that's less of an issue. But the problem remains that there are some key immutable aspects to services that Microsoft doesn't try to give you. Um, any kind of migration capability, any kind of modification capability. And I think that that is, you know, some of those have been there for a long time. Um, You can't rename a storage account because it's tied to DNS. But why is that a big issue? Why can't we just update the DNS record? Um, There should be a a broader um, mobility kind of drive within the cloud to go back to some of the cloud root some of the, the cloud philosophy of you know everything is ethereal therefore you shouldn't be tied to anything everything is just a piece of software effectively running somewhere so why can't we change its state so you know i think that that the next evolution that we should see i think mobility within the cloud some kind of convection occurrence within there moving the cloud around and giving you freedom to actually um just just innovate and iterate within your own service without having to throw your service away with the cloud doing more to migrate your runtime and your data and your settings and on your logs and your all that all the goodness that comes with it i think that is actually a big step forward maybe a slightly um behind the scenes one compared to a brand new service or brand new feature but i do think that would be um a game changer really for for microsoft I love that idea of mutability. I really do. I've got so used to the fact that, you know, you can't, you, what, you know, your your path is set when you choose something that um, I've got so used to that, that, uh, that I know for now, right, that I shouldn't even, I shouldn't even get involved in it. I didn't, yeah. I should, you know, I should, I should think in advance. I should think about what happens if we're going to do silly things you know i'm i i fully prepared myself because i haven't actually kept up with this whole you know transmute something from um ragrs to lrs you know i i fully prepared myself to copy <laughs> petabytes and petabytes of data to a new storage account and i was marveled by the fact that i didn't need to yeah um, so i mean i guess that's a plus things are shifting yeah 
Absolutely. I think it just needs to carry on like that. I do think that that, that notion of it being transmutable across the board. Like, and if you think about that, where does that naturally go? You start off with a Postgres DB and you want to migrate it into a SQL DB. You want to put it into a, a Synapse DB, right? There, there are pathways through those things. And those pathways are relatively consistent, right? You change things, you you have to um, you have to support the same fundamental data shapes. You have to warn about truncations around the edges for the happy set. There's a path between those things. Why can't I not have a view of the cloud that says I've got a data structure of some form? And if I want to change it, the cloud helps me to do some of those things. Why do I need to go into the the world of of humans and human foibles to do a data integration problem. Uh, there are data integration software services out there that will take data from A and put it in B. Why can't there be one baked into cloud that does all that? Um, I mean, things like uh, Data Factory kind of do it, but they make you do all the work, right? Why does that have to be the case? If we're going to look at the next version, we're going to be a bit futuristic about it. Can it not be the platform has well-trodden paths between various things and all you have to do is go into your sql db and go i went through one of these instead and it ends up being a mysql database or something that that would be neat good stuff good stuff um well we are well over time and uh we've got darren joining us yay good hey guys hey man well um do you want to do you want to introduce yourself and you've got three things I've got three things, yeah. I'm I'm feeling overwhelmed now. Well, slightly overwhelmed and also slightly frustrated. It's only three. Um, but anyway. That's what it yeah. all does to you. It does. Uh, so, hi, everyone. I'm I'm Darren Fuller. I'm, uh, I've been working with Andy and Richard now for about five years in ElastiCloud, um, building data platforms uh, for customers advising on best practices. And I think I've been introduced on this in both of the previous episodes. Um, normally when you're both talking about something and end up saying, and then poor Darren has to. Um, <laughs> so yeah, that's that's me. Um, I mean, in terms of my background, it's varied to say the very least. I mean, started off in computer sales, moved across into children's entertainment, um, legal training, retail, civil aerospace um and then i decided it to give it all up and come and work with the cool kids so yeah that's pretty much me i also really hate talking about myself <laughs> far too humble mate but um don't worry we'll be that out of you eventually um, eventually <laughs> so okay let's just get straight into it um what's the first thing you want to talk about all right so first thing I want to talk about then is a thing I hate. Um, and it's not an Azure service this time. Um, it is documentation. So I get a real bee in my bonnet around documentation. Um, the Azure documentation that, that's provided is sort of okay up to a point. Um, if you're new to a service, and you want to find out how to get started, you know, if you want to create a function app and you, you want to do it in Python, you go to the build your first Python function app. It's a, it's a great tutorial. It takes you through it step by step and you can ever so quickly get this, this function up, up and running. 
the code it tells you to write probably not the best and you really wouldn't want to do it that way in a production system but it gets you there and it gets you started then the next step on from that is you've got these great big architecture slides okay so you want to take your python function app well great now here's an architecture here's an, here's an end-to-end enterprise data architecture that you can slot that into and then everything in the middle seems to be missing so i can do my hello world and i know i've got this end state architecture how the hell do I get from one to the other? And you've kind of really, there's almost like a skill set that you have to have in understanding how to navigate the documentation to get to the information you need to be able to do that. There isn't really that sort of clear-cut path. And then you bake on top of that as well. There's so many hidden things as well inside of the documentation. I mean, we've had it recently where you know, we've been having issues uploading data to, to one service in particular. Um, and it turned out there was, <clears throat> under batch mode, an API limit of 40 items per API request. But the only place that information existed was inside of the Python code for the Azure CLI tool, which really shouldn't be a source of documentation. I shouldn't you know, I want to upload 400 things and I want to do it as a batch. Okay, I should be able to go to the documentation and say, how do I do that? And the documentation should go through, okay, well, you authenticate first, you create your API request, this is how you need to sort your data, this is how you upload it, and by the way, these are the limits you should be aware of, but it just doesn't exist. There's the documentation that says there is an API endpoint, and this is how you can authenticate with it. There's a bit of documentation that says you can go get this stuff from your machine and upload it. If you do that, you want to use this API. Absolutely nowhere did it say anything about this limit. So at that point, you tend to get to people just walking away from the service or people like me who will think, well, it works in that tool. But can I go find the source code for that tool and, and go and see what they're doing? Oh, look, there's a limit. So there's that, but then there's also the things like the responses uh, to it. So you know, picking on, on one tool, which I know we all, we all love, which is Azure Synapse, for instance. Um, inside of their documentation, there's uh, the MS Spark Utils library, which you can use for going and getting secrets from Keyvault, which is you know, it's absolutely brilliant. I think, Andy, you mentioned it earlier. You know, having all that integration with Keyvault to get secrets so the users don't have to understand it's absolutely brilliant. Um, but the documentation misses half of the feature set. And I've actually got an outstanding issue against the documentation, which is that you're, you're telling people to use this function where if you want to get a secret from a Keyvault, you have to tell it the Keyvault name, the secret name, and then optionally the link service name, which you've had to create to connect to Keyvault. Why do, why, why do that? And if you start digging again into the actual tool itself, there's a, a get secret link service option, which is, well, tell you what, just give me the link service name and a secret name, and I'll do all of that other work for you. But it's just nowhere in the documentation. So, like I say, I think, I think from the thing I hate is that there's that whole middle bit missing and just that, being able to understand the documentation and understand where you need to go to to find the stuff that's missing is 
is a skill set in its own right. So I guess uh, over to you guys to tell me I'm talking rubbish. I, I think that Microsoft have struggled with documentation since the start of Azure. Um, I think, I mean, one thing, one thing that I, I think that they've got better with is like standardizing the format and the narrative for each of the services. I think that they also, um, correct me if I'm wrong, because um, I haven't actually contributed to documentation, but I think it's all open source now. Is that fair? Yeah, to it, is. it is. It is. Yeah. It is. And I, I have. I have done uh, that. Cool. So the Do whole you... section on Data Factory with how to set up a self-hosted integration runtime, which Java <laughs> version you need, all of that setup is is because I contributed it because I got fed up of it not being there. Oh my god, Darren, we should literally track Microsoft spend on that, right? <laughs> I mean, oh my god. Um, actually, I haven't, I haven't sworn yet. So um, just so that we could get the uh, the obligatory um, expletive logo on it. Um, <laughs> one of the things that I would say is. Um, for most of the people that I know, it probably wouldn't make any difference because none of them actually read the fucking manual. Um, and all the questions, especially around integration runtimes, um, I, I, I've been asked in every single recent hack and every single um, project. And it's just become commonplace for me to just like churn it all out and to explain to them why you need the Java runtime and where, um, you know, when you're using integration runtimes, how Parquet is created and things like that. So um, I am going to get really, really aggressive about this with any of our new potential customers, especially in the hacks, and go, we did the documentation, RTFM. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, when I created that pull request for it, it turned out that there was actually documentation that covered some of the components that you need for a self-hosted integration runtime tool but in order to find it you had to go to the integration runtime page i mean this was at the time so you had to go to the integration runtime page you had to click on avro i think go from that link back through to data factory and at some point there there was a link that would start talking about java versions so um, needle in a haystack exactly but at least it's open source, mate, just to flip that around, you know, how many times have we had problems and we can't get access to the source code and there's no way of actually getting to the, the underlying problem. So there there is some sort of silver lining, even though it's almost elitist in that it's hidden within code. So you have to be a coder to be able to get to the answer. But, you know, back in the day, the day being... Uh, 2011 or so Richard and I would would have to try and reverse engineer like assemblies um and decompile oh, them to find error messages and try yeah, and look for the yeah yeah and seven yeah <laughs> well, that's closed source and no documentation so things have moved on a bit from there well they have and you think back to that same time where it's well if I wanted to check the documentation the first thing I've got to go do is walk across to the cabinet pull out the MSDN CD pack Work out which disk it's on, load it up, trawl through all. Of, yeah, I mean, there it is. Come on, a huge way since having to work out which of the what was it about forty CDs were in one of those things when they landed twice a year. 
so it's definitely come on a long way from that. And yeah, it's open source. Um, so yeah, things are definitely moving on. It's moving in the right direction at the very least. It's just still massively frustrating when you have to tell people to go read documentation and then actually have to go read the documentation yourself and go, okay, well, yeah. I, so it is there, but you kind of want to go from there to, to this and then do this. And if it's a third moon in April and the jade monkey has smiled at you, then you'll find the right information. <laughs> oh, brilliant. But Darren, that's really cool because there's an expression of hate and love in that, which is great. You've got um, you've got the fact that uh, Microsoft has documentation has got better, but it's still somewhat crap. But we love the fact that it's open source. Yeah, that's kind of all over the place there. Nice messaging. OK. All right. Um, Okay, so I guess guess next point then. Um, I'm going to go for one that one that I love, um, which is probably going to be relatively short and sweet, but I I absolutely love it. And this is authentication, um, and specifically when it's your managed identities. Just that that whole ability of being able to write your templates, whether you're using ARM or Bicep or you, know, you were upset as a child, so so you're using Terraform. Um, but just that ability to define your resources. Um, say, for instance, so say for instance, you've got a web app that needs to talk to a database. So in your template, you say, okay, well, I want to create a web app, and I want it to have a managed a system assigned a managed identity. Um, actually, skip the database. That's a really bad example. It needs to access a storage account, uh, and I want it to have storage blob data contributor permissions to to this container so i have to find my storage account i have to find my container that's all in my template and then just a couple lines more of templating and you've now given the web app storage blob data contributor permissions to to the container as well and you deploy it it goes as long as you're deploying it with an account that's got sufficient permissions it's set up you've got access it just works out of the box and just just that whole having not to be able to share credentials. I mean, I can still remember working in, in previous roles where it was um, a text document you'd open up in Notepad on a, on a shared drive. Or as as was found out in a particularly famous pen test uh, for, a, for a former employer of mine, um, the devs had been sharing it in a text document that was stored on the desktop of the server the production app was deployed to. Um, you know, stored inside of Git or source safety if you go all the way back to those days. Um, you know, people with, with portable hard drives or USB sticks with, with all these information on just so you could share the the secrets between everybody. But just not having to have it and just say, I've got the service, I've got service A, it needs to talk to service B. It has an identity. I want that identity to have access. And I think that is just beautiful. Oh, wow. I I couldn't agree with you more. I just, I, I remember with the advent of managed identities and all of the uh, documentation around how to use them from service to service and even even how to use them from, from VMs and bootstrap processes using the, uh, using various SDKs. Um, Everything just got so much easier, right? And then you, like you say, you add automation into this, and you've just got things that work. 
when you deploy them across environments. It's just so stunningly useful. It's kind of like <laughs> it's kind of like the Babel fish of Azure, really, isn't it? It really is. Yeah, sharing the credentials through Delta Wave directly to your brain. <laughs> Love it, Andy. What do we What do we think of MIs? Have a dissenting view. Say something. Not love. I don't know. I do like them. I think they're pretty good. You know, um, you know, back in the day, we, we'd have to like set up the service principles and whatnot. And that's just an absolute disaster. And I, I guess the bit that is maybe somewhat rough around the edges with them is the difference between system assigned and user assigned and and that some things don't really like the user assigned ones but they do like the managed that the system assigned ones i think that's still a thing here and there in Azure, but you know i overall i like them i think they're pretty good and they definitely do something good for for the notion of a service account you know um I guess off the side of that, there are some services that, that we use that, that don't support like full um, user oriented, uh, like granular access to data points and stuff. And that means we end up using them where we shouldn't be using them. But that's more more on us because there's not much of a use case for the second part. If if there is, you know, no, no lower level control, you may as well go through the service anyway, because the service has to define that control um but no i'm with darren on that and you rich you know they're, they're overall really really good things and like the the least bad alternative you know yeah absolutely <laughs> the language is brilliant the least bad alternative i love it i love it well, i think i mean I, I think andy you and i were talking about this the other day uh, uh -huh. which was the the good old days of, of web app development where just to make your web app run on a server you would SSH into it and go, oh, what, what, what was the permission set I needed for this? How, how do I set up secrets for <laughs> it? Oh, do you know what? CHmod777, everything. Yeah, exactly. Uh, for, for many for many years, I was just like, that's that's just like this dance that you do, the CHmod777 dance. You just do that every so often. You put your Perl file into the CGI bin, <laughs> and then that's what you do. <laughs> it's like, and it took me a while to realize that that was not what you should be doing, um, and that you should really understand things like security principles before you start messing around with them. And I guess that is one thing, isn't it? Like, if I was to be honest around it, like the development experience around security generally is pretty bad. Um, it gets really specific really quickly. And and the ability to kind of grok that as a dev is it seems to be hampered by some of the language and complexity in how things work. Like we start talking about OAuth flows pretty quickly and, and the differences between them. And they are eminently understandable but you have to take your foot off the gas to understand them and i guess there's they're like a little speed bump and i think one of the roles overall of something like a cloud environment is to shrink those speed bumps and I'm not always sure that that is necessarily achieved um particularly around security and uh, and and in fact it becomes this slightly unhealthy aspect of software where you configure it once and you script it once and then it becomes the 
the thing of security that we must not touch because it only works if it works in this particular way. And that can lead to some pretty unhealthy situations, you know, with dev environments secured differently into production and all kinds of weird stuff like that around the edges. Um, so I do think that there is a, a broad kind of problem. I wouldn't say it was necessarily an Azure specific problem, but, you know, if you compare some of the third-party vendors out there, like Alt Zero, you know, they just do a great job of the development experience. And when I've when I've used Alt Zero versus the native ones on Azure, I feel like the 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 size of the road bumps are the speed bumps are smaller, and you know you can you can kind of you can kind of get a little bit further before you run into to bother with it. Yeah, absolutely. All right, I guess it's my I guess it's my third point then. Um, and hopefully I'm going to be massively uncontentious with this one as well then uh, so I, honestly to, to doing it today just feels too hot for hate so I'm, I'm going for another thing that I love um, and for me it's the absolute workhorse of Azure and that's function apps and I just I mean they're just incredible really uh, it kind of, they're kind of in the same way that Andy was going on about earlier with web apps and Historically, they they spun off from from web apps um, where you're using the the, the underutilized cycles of, of your deployed web app. But since they became their own thing, they've, they've just they've just absolutely run away. And just taking like your custom code and having it run in Azure in such an easy to use way with with great connections with things like storage accounts and event hubs. Um, triggers, HTTP triggers, being able to hide them as, as APIs, providing rootable, durable functions for being able to fan out and fan in uh, with some amazing design patterns there that just scale. Um, I just find them absolutely incredible. And the fact that you're not always tied to, to a specific language. So if you want to develop them in Java, or if you want to develop them in C Sharp, Python, um, JavaScript, or you know, if you want, to, if you want to go truly rogue and start writing them into something like COBOL using in-process functions, then then you can do. I mean, I don't know why you would. I'm, not, I'm sure there's somebody who who would hate to like enough to do that, but just to be able to say that arbitrary code and just just run it anywhere, and it's Okay, I'm probably going to mix a little bit of hate. It's one of the reasons why I find it so hard as to, to understand why people target things like logic apps a lot of the times. If you're using something like a logic app for the custom connectors where you, you have to put a lot of effort in if you were writing your custom code, I, I kind of get that. But where people are just saying, well, I want to read a file from a storage account, I want to split it, do a for loop, and then write it over here. I mean, I get that it's it's no code. Except for the fact that once you've written it, you've got to export to JSON, JSON down into your into Git, then you can do a whole CI CD process around. It's just it's just so much work, as opposed to a function app, which is really quick to write, easy to deploy, has a whole CI CD process there, which is you know, well understood and contrary to my earlier point, it's actually well documented. Um, just to get that code into production as quickly as possible, and doing the right thing is. Yeah, I think it's just amazing. I love function apps too. Oh yeah, um, me too, hundred uh, percent. And I think it, it 
it's a shame that we couldn't pull Bram in because Bram has been writing AWS lambdas, which are incredibly mediocre. Um, and uh, even though they've now got a C sharp um, SDK, which just about works, um, they they don't have the elegance. Um, the, the there's something there's something called step functions, which you where you can sort of emulate um, design patterns, but everything through lambdas is configuration driven you've got environment variables all over the place and you know just the simplicity right of of functions right the fact that you know where everything is all the services like just hook up together um you've got custom binders if you need them but every but you never would because um all of the inputs and outputs that you need are catered for you don't need to worry about scalability because uh, the um, the platform worries about that. Um, and you've got these seven beautiful patterns, which just cover every single eventuality that you could possibly want to code against. Um, yeah. No, I, I absolutely love them too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they're, they're a gift that keep on giving. No, no argument there. They're really, really good. Okay. Don't your <laughs> that is that is a really really difficult one to top. Um, I feel like I need to inject a little bit more hate into this because I think we're having too much of a laugh first here. <laughs> um, so I'll throw. Oh God, no! I, I won't. Uh, I'm gonna. I'm gonna throw. I'm gonna. I'm gonna throw some more love out. Um, so, so over the last few years, um, I have been. Uh, I've been using um, Azure Data Explorer. I absolutely love it. I keep going on about it in conferences and um, on blog posts. It is the epitome of um, a true Lambda architecture. Um, it can be its own orchestrator um, along with uh, ADF. Um, we can we can ingest real time through the event hub, the event grid. Um, we can set up batch cycles. Um, there's a variety of amazing tooling, um, and it can scale. Uh, some of the some of the platforms that I've got, I've got tables with 220 billion plus rows. Um, I I was going to make a I was going to make a point about about some of the some something that I shouldn't really be making a point about because it is going to introduce the synapse debate and uh, I feel like we can leave synapse to 10 but what I'm going to do is I'm going to bring forward this really annoying thing this thing that really <laughs> because um, ADX um, the ADX team are a fantastic team fantastic engineering team they've spent they really really know their product and whenever they get any negative feedback or somebody wants a feature they'll explain the why um and you know i'm i was particularly annoyed a while ago in that you can't decouple compute and storage in adx so it makes it hard to move from or near impossible to move from subscription to subscription you have to begin to do cunning things like using replicas and um, understand how you can create additional extents and move data across from one place to another, and it all gets very, very complicated. So that's one, still one big bugbear, and they've partially explained to me why that, why they can't do that. I think um, one of the things that 
that annoyed me is that for such a beautifully incredible product um, that is definitely not got enough focus from Microsoft um, uh, in their quest to try to dominate the world of Spark, um, I feel like they introduce custo pools too early. Um, some of my some of my early experiences of custo pools have been okay, um, but they've shifted the focus away from um, away from Synapse. Uh, and I should say that um, last week um, the naming changed from custo pools to data explorer pools, but they shifted the focus away from this custo element towards um, towards how holistic Synapse is. And so a lot of the examples around Spark pools talking to Custo, and uh, some of them just don't work. I've seen locks on tables which have got RLS, and there are certain conditions which are probably untested edge cases according to Microsoft at the moment. Um, so my, my feeling is that they they tend to do this and they tend to release some things a little bit too early. And I feel like there needs to be a bit of work on Custo pools um, with if they're going to promote that interaction between Spark and Custo, um, because there's a few few issues that I've noticed at the moment. Um, and honestly, if they can get this right, I would be one of the first to take our ADX deployments and move them into Synapse. Um, but for now, I think it needs a little bit more work. Oh, fair enough. Fair enough. Very specific. Darren, I know we use a bit of that in intelligent spaces. Would you concur with Rich there? Yeah. I mean, I, I do absolutely love the Sure Data Explorer. It, it's a great tool. I think that there's a couple of there's a couple of things that just wind me up a little bit with it. Um, one of which is, you know, if you if you're in a situation where you just maybe need to get to like a single record in at a time it's it's not very well explained it's it's a little bit of an edge case but you know sometimes you just need to do it um so that can be be a bit of an issue to be honest the bit the thing that gets me more with Azure data explorer now, which i really wish microsoft would look at is the pricing model um and that's just because it sort of jumps from okay i've got a dev instance and i've got a kind of a small instance and oh my god i'm now over here and this this thing costs a lot of money there's there's nothing in between so I, coming back a little bit to the billing information, it's, it's really hard to understand how it needs to be scaled and what the cost implications are doing, doing so well. But also it's just that massive jump between, between the different SKUs, which yeah, I think Microsoft really needs to look at that. It can totally get very, very expensive. Um, and, uh, and I also think that at that kind of level, right, you really need to be, to be, to be programming um, to be to be right KQL properly. I mean, it's um, we're going through this cycle at the moment of optimization, and um, it's incredible how um, if you don't really understand how you're partitioning data and how you should be writing your update policies, how much more expensive it can become. Like anything to do with data, though. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I know the point I was just going to say was just the coming back to your point about the edge cases. It's um, I find it amazing how how frequently we run into edge cases. It, it it is true, it is, and I, I think this is where this is where Microsoft really needs to seed seed the feedback um, at these early stages, 
um, not with customers who are doing mainstream things, but with partners who are pushing the boat out for their products. Um, because I think that I think that it would give confidence um, to release things a bit earlier. But I do sort of feel that, yeah, sometimes sometimes they're a little bit too early. Yeah. Anyway, so we've got we've got space for one more, which I think we've got six minutes now to wrap this up. So um, what are we going to do for our last one? Are we going to have a last one or are we going to change the title of this to nine things we hate and love about you? <laughs> have you got one ready to go? Uh, no, I haven't. I was going to throw that back to Darren because he's really good at thinking on his feet, unless you've got one. Uh, go on, Darren. Oh, God. Um <clears throat> We can leave it at nine. It's fine. <laughs> it's fine. Nine, nine is a magic number anyway. So uh nine, Yeah, only one I was gonna mention I think was um Oh you go. <laughs> Twenty minutes now. No, do you know what? <laughs> leave, leave, leave it at nine. I've I've I've, th- I've thought of one, but I, this is gonna be going on for another hour. Oh yeah. <laughs> I I feel like now now we've now we've talked about like the <laughs> the um you know, the magic nine. If, if we actually give this a tent, we're gonna we're gonna jinx Microsoft and they'll go yeah. bankrupt as, as you all die overnight. <laughs> and it'll all be our fault. The universe would have just gone, no, you should have stuck at nine, <laughs> Andy Richard. And Darren, it's especially your fault for mentioning ten. <laughs> okay, well um, I mean to appease the universe, I never thought ten. Ten didn't happen. Sorry. Yeah, I don't know what ten is. It's a, there's a number I'm not familiar with. <laughs> Absolutely. And Gabriel's already Gabriel's just said that we can change the title for this to Magic Nine or something like that, which is great. Yeah. So, um, so do we have any do we have any final parting words, Darren? Now's the time to. Um, uh, I think I think the last five minutes or the last four minutes, as we've got, we normally we normally fill with insults. Um, you're far too kind of a person to do that. Um, but have you got any parting? Parting messages for anybody new to the show or anybody new to um, our banter on Azure? Um, other than, you know, it, we do banter about it, it, but it is a great platform. <laughs> it's, I've, not, I've not seen anybody announce on Twitter that their startup's going bust and out of business because they've overspent on Azure. <laughs> that, that's always AWS. <laughs> um, and, con- you know, unlike GCP, you know, Azure has decent docu- at least half decent documentation. So it's definitely the platform you want to be at. And, you know, as we said earlier, it is open source. So where you do find things that suck, <laughs> go create a patch, create a pull request, make the platform better. Fantastic. That's great parting words. I couldn't, I, I was just going to actually insult a few people. I'm so <laughs> glad that you got me off because we always end the show on a bad note. And now, uh, and now we're praising Microsoft and we're sending out the waves of love. So yeah, very, very happy at that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's almost Ch- Churchillian, isn't it? You know, yeah. Azure is the worst form of cloud except for all the others, something like that. <laughs> um, no, I think what we've just... I mean, proved... if I'm messing with the full... I can say if I'm messing with the format here, I have a list of people I could just go through and just call them dicks. <laughs> no, no. Put no, the no, list away. Put the list away. No, burn it. Destroy it. I think I think what we've just proved is that Andy and I need to invite you in just for the last five minutes of every single yeah. show. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, listen, everybody, as always, thank you for your attention. Hope you enjoyed Thanks the show. In. And tune in again. Thank you, Darren. Uh, Thanks for having me, go.
Thank you.